Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Piers Kelly, author of The Last Language on Earth, Linguistic Utopianism in the Philippines, published in 2023 by Oxford University Press. Welcome to New Books in Language, Piers. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Let's let's dive in. I usually ask folks for their kind of elevator pitch at the outset. So if you had just a few minutes in an elevator with somebody to give us kind of a nutshell of what your book's main idea is, what what would it be? Sure. Well, I guess what the book does is it tells the story of a language. And this language is from the Philippines. It's called Iskayan. And it's spoken by about 550 people today, give or take. And I personally find Askayan to be really fascinating, really intriguing, and really puzzling. And the thing about Askayan is that it is a full language. It's it's fully expressive. Um, it's fully functional. It does anything a language can do. Yet it's one that I have come to believe over the course of my research was created intentionally by its own speakers, or rather by the forebears of those speak, who speak it today, so not, not super long ago. And it was created um, entirely from scratch, from zero. So the book does two things. It, it pieces together um, how this act of creation, this, this um, kind of primary act of linguistic creation was achieved, um, and it tries to also establish what the motivations for, for that creation were and, and the consequences of that creation. And what I ultimately conclude is that the, the speakers and creators of Iskayan were uh, developing their language to enact a kind of um, radical politics. They were staking a big anti-colonial claim um, to, to territory, to political sovereignty, um, but also a kind of cultural uh, cultural and linguistic sovereignty. And there's a kind of a, there's a linguistic worldview that comes through the language and it's on the one hand very oppositional, so it acts and it stands against the status quo, but it's also simultaneously quite utopian. It's trying to set up the parameters for a new status quo and a new more inclusive status quo. So that's probably what the book is about in a nutshell. That's that's quite a, a big nutshell. I mean, in se- in the sense of what the what a language is doing there. There's a, there's quite a lot that that a single language spoken by you said 550 people uh, are are doing or is doing, I should say rather. Um, that's that's great. How did you get in, interested in Iskayan? So um, it was completely accidental. It was sort of a, a serendipitous situation. I was working for the travel publisher Lonely Planet. Um, and um, I was feeling a bit listless and wanted a change of scene, and a few opportunities came up with um, the what was then called AusAid, so the Australian aid, government aid program. Um, one of them was to be a director of uh, a theatre for disabled children in Sri Lanka, and another one was to document an undocumented language of the Philippines, and I applied for both with no experience in either area at all and I ended up going to the Philippines obviously um so I knew I learned a little bit about the this mysterious language before I left and some people were in fact advising me to be very cautious because they were aware of controversies around this language um 
I went to um, Bohol, which is where the language is spoken, and I worked through the offices of the National Commission of Indigenous Peoples, uh, the service centres there, and my goal there was to um, um, write up government reports to evaluate um, a basically a um, claim for access to resources through the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act. And... Um, it, I only had 10 months for that. I didn't get as deeply as I'd like to have gotten. So I ended up going back to Australia, actually enrolling in linguistics so I could do it properly, eventually doing a PhD and coming back. And, and I've been going back every so often ever since. So that was back in 2005 um, that I first went to the Philippines and I've been going back ever since. Wow, that's that's great. So, in some ways, the topic drove your your PhD. You didn't discover it while you were in your in your PhD. It's a that's right a different yeah, story a, than some. It's a funny way to do it. Yeah, it's a, it seems like it's a great way, but it's yeah, it's a little bit unusual. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, let's get into the book. It's got three parts, and what I thought we would do is go through it part by part, and then, of course, you know, we can go on some tangents if if we need to. Um, and at some point, I'm going to ask you to, if you can, speak maybe a little bit of a sample of a scan or, or um, maybe not speak, but read something uh, just so that listeners can get a sense of what it sounds like. Uh, we won't be able to see how it's written, which is part of the book, but at least we'll give them a sense of things. Um, so, so part one of the book gives readers a kind of a background here. It's a sense of the role of the colonial regimes, of course, Spanish and American in, in shaping how languages were understood in the Philippines, their relationship to political power and things. And this is, this is all before the Iscan language appears, sort of, it comes on the scene, as you put it. So there's a lot of territory historically to cover here, but maybe you could just give us a bit of a background about what the linguistic terrain of the Philippines was before colonial contact, at least what we know about it. Yeah, okay. So it's a it's a quite a linguistically diverse part of the world. It's the languages there are part of the um, Austronesian language family, the kind of Western Malayo um, Polynesian branch, if you want to be more specific. Um, this was also in terms of the history of documentation of Austronesian, the Philippines is where the, the first uh, language of the Austronesian family to be documented by outsiders was Visayan, which is the language, in fact, the dominant language spoken on Bohol. Um, and this is because when Magellan made his famous voyage and he crossed over and arrived in um, the Philippines, um, very tired and hungry in 1525, I think. Um, this was what he he um, documented or one of his crew members documented uh, a list of words in Visayan. This is also where Magellan died um, dramatically. So it's kind of very early on um, in the picture of the Spanish Empire. The Philippines is a kind of, it's it's an old possession of Spain and, and it ends up being held on by Spain to very late as well. So F Philippines doesn't pass out of Spanish hands until um, 1898. So the story of the Philippines in some ways is also the story of the Spanish Empire. Um, so when the Spanish came, they, um, I'm simplifying because I'm not really Absolutely. a Philippine historian, but they came and they, um, they, 
didn't treat the Philippine Islands quite like they treated Mexico or other places that were filled with gold and resources. It was, in a sense, a kind of outpost of the church. And so the people they sent to the Philippines were um, priests, or more accurately, friars. And these people were... Their, their goal was to kind of convert the population to Catholicism and to kind of govern the islands um, by proxy. Um, so do the king's bidding, as it were, in the Philippine Islands. And they, <clears throat> their mandate was to learn the languages and to <clears throat> give their sermons and, their, and so on and do their confessions and all those sorts of things in the local languages. So they um, wrote grammars and so on. But this is not a very efficient way to kind of govern, um, given that there, I mean, I'm not sure how many languages there might have been at the time of colonisation, but there would have been hundreds. But they ended up working through the major languages of the Philippines. So languages like Tagalog and Visayan, which were and still are huge languages. So today they each have about um, 20 million speakers. Um, And then there are other larger languages, but they used these languages as a kind of a governance mechanism. And they weren't necessarily concerned with um, smaller languages, and they weren't really concerned with finding out much about uh, Filipinos and their languages. Um, And places like Bahol were especially um, kind of uninteresting to the Spanish because they weren't are very, Bahol was not or is not very fertile. It doesn't produce lots of rice or lo, it doesn't produce lots of tribute. And it's also an island that had been in open rebellion against Spain for a long time. So this was a, um, the, the so-called Dogohoi rebellion over much of the 18th century into the 19th century was, um, turned the island into a bit of a blank spot on the map, um, yeah, so that's, I guess, the overview. Yeah, and so when these colonial missionaries were surveying the, the linguistic terrain, so to speak, what did their presence do in terms of how people were thinking about the languages, how the languages were sort of characterized? Because uh, as you, I think, as I as you put it in the book, you're, it's not like they're just sitting there um, recording. They're not just passive, right? They're they're intervening in a, in a way in terms of how languages are characterizing relationship to each other and things like that. Yeah, so they, they um, created hierarchies of languages. And um, one of the persistent views across this whole period is that um, you can rank languages in a hierarchy and you can create a there's a theological explanation as well so you can so that the spanish um clergy are taking seriously the story of the um, tower of babel and their take on the tower of babel is that the original language is hebrew and then it gets shattered into all these different um languages and so (laughs) how close you are to hebrew is um, how much prestige you get. And, it's, and then it becomes a little bit more complex than that. But basically, they would put Hebrew up there at the top somewhere. Other languages like Latin and Greek, you know, biblical languages. Spanish, of course, is way up there. And then they did exactly the same thing with the languages of the Philippines. So they're very quick to elevate languages like Tagalog and Visayan because they, um, well, because they were it was convenient to do so, but they created automatically this 
kind of problem of here is the language and here is the, here is the meaningless dialect. Um, and speakers also began to, to some extent, identify with those hierarchies as well. And so what are some of the features that they were looking for to identify where on the hierarchy these these languages would go to put them closer or further away from Hebrews? Well, I'd, they, I don't think they did a very any kind of really sophisticated review of features of languages to do that. It was more about... Um, it was more deciding first what is the language that's important and then retrospectively um, reading into it um, things like, um, you know, you have Spanish linguist priests going, oh, Tagalog just sounds beautiful, you know. Um, and um, and depending on where they were stationed in the Philippines, there might be a little bit of rivalry. So it sounds better than Visayan and, and Visayan is... Um, Visayan has all these words for genitalia and, you know, it's, it's um, one of these priests is saying it's, not, it's fit for only for an immoral people. So there's this kind of contest of which is the best language. Right. And w- at this time then, <laughs> where is Eskayan? Is it in the picture? What's going on there? Eskayan is absolutely not in the picture. Um, and, and it doesn't come <laughs> into the picture until much later. And perhaps I could maybe talk a little bit about how Eskain came into the picture because it's it's a marginal historical event but I, it's one that really captured my imagination and I um, ended up sort of opening the book with this story um, and it it's so all the Bahol is just to paint a picture it's a it's a largish island it's um, I looked it up um, and it's about the geographic size of Puerto Rico, if if that helps people in the US understand. Um, and it's got, you know, today about 1.4 million people. So it's big enough to be its own province, to have its own regional government. Um, it's always been considered a kind of an entity in and of itself. So the story of how Eskayan kind of came into the picture is well after the Spanish period. It's into... Uh, as as recently as 1980, and this is when the population of the Philippines was beginning to grow very rapidly. This is a time also of martial law. So we've got the dictators Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos are in power. Imelda Marcos is famously the one who uh, had 3,000 pairs of shoes in the, pa- in the palace when, when she was overthrown. Um, but at this time, they're doing very well. The economy is rising. But there's a problem, which is there's going to be food shortages soon if the population keeps growing. So they send all these agricultural advisors across the country to try and introduce these intensive agriculture techniques. They get to Bahol, and these men are kind of touring around. They get right up to the eventually to the southeast corner of Bahol, which is a very hard place to access, um, very few tracks, and they get up to the top of this mountain that's kind of, it's a densely forested mountain. They get to the top and it's all very overgrown, but in the middle there's a big clearing and in this clearing is a village and they meet the people in this village. But what's really extraordinary is these people are wearing clothes made out of um, plant fibre, and they're, they're speaking in a language that they can't understand, um, which is unusual because as far as everyone knew, there was only one language on Bahol. And um, what's even weirder about this encounter is that they notice that the people are not only speaking this language, they're writing it down. They are literate in their own language and they're writing it in a script that they also can't read, that the, the advisors can't read. And it's a really weird and squiggly and florid script. It's got almost hieroglyphic aspect to it. 
Um, so the agricultural advisors come back down to the lowlands and say, hey, hey, we've found a lost tribe up there. Um, this is... Um, this is pretty important. And so this was a story that um, people in the lowlands had on had reason to believe because, um, to, well, it was plausible enough because Filipinos are raised in the knowledge that um, um, before the Spanish came, they, they were literate in their own writing system. And this is absolutely true. So it's, uh, well, certainly in the north of the country, the Spanish came along and they they were um, astounded by the fact that the, the people that they were just conquering were literate in their own script. And But they were also inclined, it was also a plausible story because Filipinos also have this story of how even before the Spanish came, a whole lot of... Um, uh, seafaring Malays came from the south, from around Borneo, and started colonising all the lowland regions and pushing the original hap- inhabitants up into the mountains. <clears throat> and this is not exactly true. This theory is um, has been discredited, but it's a story that <clears throat> helps lowlanders kind of understand their own political predominance, if you like, um, so they can talk about themselves or historically they were able to talk about themselves as, you know, bringers of civilization and Christianity and those sorts of things and to kind of justify why, <coughs> excuse me, why they could identify with the Spanish as well, uh, the Spanish rulers. So that the, the uplands were a place of wild outlaws, indigenous people, savages, whatever the lowlands was a place of civilization. So this story was resonant when it came out in 1980 and the governor of Bahol said, okay, this is, we need to send an expedition to find out these people who are calling themselves the Eskaya and we need to send anthropologists up there, we need to send linguists. And he wrote to uh, the University of the Philippines in Manila and said, send an expedition. But in the meantime, um, it, the, the whole story was attracting, you know, informal visits from tourists and adventurers who were like, hey, this is cool, we should go and check it out. And so over this period from 1980 onwards, there were lots of little um, stories that got into local tabloid press about the Askaya people, and they were pretty bizarre. So there were these stories were making the claim that these people are speaking Hebrew, um, that maybe they're a lost tribe of Israel, again, resonant with this idea that, you know, perhaps all languages come from Hebrew. Um, maybe their, their language is related to Etruscan, um, and these people have magic powers. Um, so they just kept getting bigger and bigger, these stories, and this didn't go down particularly well with the authorities. It became a bit embarrassing. Um, No expedition came from Manila. So that's where um, the situation kind of stagnated. But in this time, the Askaya people themselves were beginning to find their voice because they're trying to make sense of who are all these people who've been coming to us, telling stories about us. So they started interacting with government agencies and trying to assert themselves and in terms of maintaining access to their natural resources, but also eventually getting access to government services. So this brings us up to 1993 with the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act, and they use this act in the end as a mechanism to kind of as a kind of a vehicle for communication with the government and with the outside world. And to do that, they take on the um, the category of Indigenous and they start doing the things that you're supposed to do 
in order to conform to the government's own definition of what Indigenous is. So you need chieftains and you need a set of laws and all these sorts of things. So that's really how the Eskaya came into public um, awareness. And um, by the time I got there in, in 2005, um, there wasn't much, there still wasn't much work at all on the Iskayan language or on the kind of anthropology of Iskayan people or and, and less less on the history of the Iskayan people. So this is a bunch of follow-up questions potentially, but the first one is since you're talking about the Iskayan people and how they were speaking a language that people didn't understand, do you have anything that you can read for us to have a sense of what the language oh, sounds like? Is that, is that too much of an ask? <laughs> it, might, it might be, but there's, okay. a, there's, I can think of one line that I always remember. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, which is, and I'll see if I get it right, but it's the line of a famous story, a story that ended up being central to my research, and it is... Um, uh, Mukna in Monsikta Pinai Pisaya Bu'ul Karun, which means um, the, the Pope Pinai created the Iskayan language in what is now called Bahol. Mm. So this right. is almost like a um, this is almost like the big a Genesis story, you know, in the beginning. Um, and it's a very short piece of um, writing or scripture, if you like. Um, and like a lot of Iskayan texts, it's a bit fragmentary and hard to understand. But it's it ended up um, being about the history of the language. It ended up being um, one that I kept returning to. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so this is happening in the 1990s. But as, as I understand it, there's a little episode that you encountered earlier in what, 1937 or so. Uh, there was a, a little bit of a letter um, referencing this language. So uh, maybe this is a, another opportunity to fill in a little bit of the, the backstory. We'll We'll unpack it as we go on, but what happened yeah. before the 80s? What happened before the 80s? So, well, um, yeah, in, in 1937, the um, leader of the Eskaya community at that time, a man called Mariano de Tahan, who is really important to the story, um, so we can return to him, he decided um, to write directly to the president of the Philippines, Manuel Quezon, and invite him to visit his village of Biabas and to witness classes that he had set up in the Iskayan language. And, and based on this letter, he's using the same terminology as the US school system that was in place in um, the Philippines at that time. So you had adult schools called night schools and then you had ordinary schools and, and he invites the president to come along the president um, declines through his secretary and writes a very kind of banal, um, sorry, I'd love to, but I can't kind of letter. But this letter became very, very treasured by the community such that they carved out a copy of it on this rare wood called Malabe timber and they made these big boards and they carved it out in the English response. So it was written, the response was written in English. Then they translated that into both Visayan and to into Iskayan, and they trans, transliterated it again into their writing system. And these boards are still, they made copies in, there's Biabas and they made copies in another village, and you can still see these boards today. They're kind of mouldering away. But it's an interesting illustration, It's and it's one that um, I talk about early in the book because um, 
it shows that the Askaya people were not, <laughs> they were certainly not trying to hide away like a lost tribe. Um, they were not as isolationist as first meets the eye. They were really actually trying to get recognised at the highest levels of government back in the 30s. And it, in 1937, like when you look at the date of the reply, it's right at the time when the national language question was being debated. So this is the Commonwealth period. The Philippines is about to be independent. The, the American administration is, say, is saying, you know, any minute now you're going to be independent. Of course, that got, got interrupted by World War II. But um, so, you, you know, you need to get your house in order so people are trying to figure out what's the national language going to be. So I suppose that Mariana Tatahan was almost offering his language as a as a um, as a national language, or at least wanting to be part of this discussion. Yeah, yeah, and this I think this gets to the one of the themes in in your book, both both Detahans wanting to be to be recognized at the same time as we'll see him being kind of a, in a rebellious sort of position. Uh, and then we also have the tribe that you say that that they they want to be recognized as an indigenous people in certain ways. Uh, so they have to kind of fit into these categories. So this is a process of uh, mimicry and rejection, as you call it, right? So maybe you can unpack that a little bit because um, it seems like what you're doing in the book too is you're thinking about how language and theorizing about language or talking about language is a place where this process of mimicry and rejection is, can be seen. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. It's a, it's a key idea throughout the book. It's not my idea. The term mimicry and rejection comes from someone called Rahul Rao, but um, within anthropology, it's been around also under various other names. Um, <clears throat> but the idea is, especially in situations of unequal colonial relations, you get sometimes communities um, mimicking, the, mimicking the kind of cultural forms of the people that are um, who are their, essentially their overlords, but at the same time going, um, we're like you, but we're not like you. Um, we're like you in all of the obvious particulars, but we're better than you. It's a kind of a, I'll see you and I'll raise you one. So um, this is what Askaya culture has done over the its, its history of interaction. It's kind of said, okay, you bring in, a, the Americans bring in a school system, we'll bring in a school system and it'll be just like yours. So you'll be able to recognise it. You'll be able to see it's legitimate, but it's better than yours because it, you know, it's, it's, it's a native one for a start. It's not a, it's not a um, artificial foreign imposition. Um, and so th this happens also with, you know, the Askaya people create a flag for themselves at some point as well. So they are taking on these symbols of nationhood as well. Um, and you get it all through Askaya literature, these um, stories that talk about before the Spanish came, we had our own church. We had our own papacy, in fact. We had our own schools. We had our own system of government. We had a public service, you know, the whole, all of the trappings, they're talking about this is what we had and we lost it. Um, and this is at a time to, when you think of the Commonwealth period, which is when I believe Askayan kind of became recuperated, this is a time when ordinary Filipinos are brought into the national conversation, even those living right in the middle of the jungle, suddenly being asked to reflect on what does it mean to be Filipino. Um, and 
they've been, you know, they've been colonized for 400 years by the Spanish and, and decades on top of that by the Americans. So there's a real yearning to go back to try and, and imagine at least a pre-colonial um, Philippine civilization. And the elites are doing exactly the same thing. Um, so people like Jose Rizal, who's the kind of great independence leader of the Philippines, he was doing exactly the same thing. He was looking at old ethnographies and annotating them and supposing, um, reading between the lines and saying, this is how we find our, our ancient Philippine civilization that was lost. So this happens on in Iskaya literature and it happens in Iskaya community over, over the 20s and 30s. Um, but it also, I argue, happens within the language itself. So once you start looking at the language proper, you see these processes of mimicry and then not so much rejection as, well, a little bit, but, but distortion. So you get, uh, maybe I could talk a bit about the, the language um, now, if that make, yep. if it makes sense to talk yeah, about Yeah, I was going to say this is a great place to turn to that, So because that's that's the second part of the three parts of the book. And one of the things that I want to make sure that we talk about is how for even though you might think, well, we're, we're looking back and we're, re we're discovering our, our sort of roots pre in this pre-colonial context, you get some idea of, well, Ascan is a created, authored, in some sense, language. Um, and so, so this distinction between natural uh, and artificial is something that you ch you think about a little bit. And then the the role of writing too is the other thing I want to make sure we talk about. So, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I'll, I'll I'll try and cover cover those things. I I when when I first went up to to Tai Tai um, to to do my very first language elicitation, I was aware of various opinions about the language. You know, people saying, "Oh, it's a fake language," or "It's a real language that's been misunderstood." So I went in, you know, with some expectation that um, it, I was going to see something unusual. And the very first person I worked with, I did the kind of ice breaking, um, pulling out the microphone and saying, now tell me, what's your word for mother and brother? And, you know, just all these kinds of just lexical elicitation. And he, he was very patient with me, but then he said, you know, I've got all this written down already. And he pulled out these notebooks, um, these, um, this was the first of some of these manuscripts that um, had been seen by the agricultural advisors in 1980s, but this was his own personal exercise book. And he read a line, he read from it. It was written all in the script, so I couldn't tell any, couldn't tell what, what was the, what the content was. And on one page, he read one line, which was in um, Visayan. And then on the facing page, he pointed with his pen at the counterpart line that was a translation into a Skyan. And then he read each sentence and he moved his pen back and forth to kind of show to me, see, it's one to one. Every single word in Visayan has a counterpart word in a, in a Skyan. So there's that process of uh, mimicry for a start. But it's also um, immediately I thought to myself, okay, so this is a created language because what's happened is we're, you know, he's speaking Visayan and people day to day here are speaking Visayan. They've been raised in Visayan. I never found anyone raised in Iskayan. And what Iskayan is, it's just what linguists call a relaxification. So you take the basic grammar and you slot in new words, but you preserve everything else. You preserve the word order, the syntax, all that sort of thing. So that was a kind of a first realization. And the second thing with the script also was I also realized that it's 
but not straight away, but I realised it's a syllabary. So each syllable, um, spoken syllable, has one graphic kind of symbolic isolated representation on the page. Um, that's what a syllabary is. What I found later as I continued researching over the years is that it was more complex than this. It wasn't exactly a one-to-one relationship um, in interesting ways, and it was also definitely more complex than a syllabary. So looking at the, the, the language when I wanted to really, because part of my project was I want to ask the language its own story. So I want to ask Askaya people, what is your, what is your take? Because no one had done that before, really. Everyone was bringing their own imagination to the Askaya people. I wanted to ask Askaya people, what do you think of your language? What's the story there? And to ask the language the same question. So when you look at... Um, the Askaya take on their language, as I said with this story, Pinai, the Mugna in Monsikta um, story, their view is, yeah, our language is created and that doesn't make it inauthentic. That actually is what makes it authentic. Um, um, we, Our language was created by this heroic ancestor called Pinai. We identify him as the, the, the first pope in the Philippines. I say him, but his gender has in recent generations become a little bit uh, less certain, which is interesting. Um, but um, <clears throat> so he created the language and he was instructed by the Holy Child, the Santo Nino, to create the, uh, to create the language and, and the script and to base it on a human body. So it has this very natural embodied origin. You can't get more human, more central than the human body. So this is the kind of almost the basis for the validity of a Skyan as a cultural form, is that it is a natural thing. Um, at the same time, it is an artificial thing. And so, yeah. No, can can you say, say, say how it's related to the body? Uh, this is about the script okay. here, yeah. the writing system. What's going on with that? So this is um, interesting, is that this the the script does have many symbols in it that are said to be copied from the human body um and it's not easy to see if you look up some askaya text you won't necessarily see that straight away but a literate askaya person will be able to say here is um this symbol here is a brain this symbol here is an ear this is an esophagus uh, this is a leg and um and after a while, you can begin to kind of recognize that there's a there's a heart, which represents the syllable tau, which also in Visayan means person. So you get this kind of um, relationship with the body there. It's not clear that you can see this. I have not been able to detect any sort of body influence in the lexicon or the grammar. Um, but Askaya people do not make a distinction between the language and the script. They're all in one, um, such that even if you were to write English words using the Askaya writing system, an Askaya person will say, that is now become Askaya, simply by virtue of being written in the script. So the script is the kind of truest embodiment of the language. Um, so what I wanted to do, so th that was obviously a very interesting story, but and that was written down, um, but then there are stories that are not written down about the language that are just common knowledge circulated around the community. And this, the important story for the history of Askayan is they then say, okay, so this creative act in the, in the, in the scripture, it says the creative act was happened in the year 600 AD, which is an incredibly specific date. Um, but what happened was later the Spanish came along 
and to Bahol, and they saw all of the records of Askayan and they destroyed them, they burned them, and they and they penalized anyone for speaking the language. But luckily, someone was clever enough to hide some of these um, records of the language in a cave for safekeeping for future generations. And so then it comes into the 20th century, and this is when this real historical figure known as Mariano de Tahan um, discovered or claimed to have discovered these tablets in a cave to have learnt the language on the basis of these records and then to retransmit it to those who were his followers at this time. So this is the story of how <coughs> Askayan came back to Bahol in the 20th century. So that's the kind of written and oral historical story. And then I wanted to look at, <coughs> I wanted to take that seriously and say, let's just entertain this as a hypothesis and, you know, um, really just just take it seriously and not be critical about it on, on you know, not, not be the kind of capitalist scientist, but be an anthropologist and say, okay, this is just, this is it. Um, but then I wanted to say, okay, who was Pinai? Who was this notional Pinai? And when was he likely to have li- lived? If we take this as a working hypothesis, and by looking at the language, um, and especially the lexicon, um, I, I, came, I sort of theorised that Pinai was someone who lived not only in the post-Spanish period, because of very strong influence of Spanish in the lexicon, but also more recently, probably in the 20th century. So contemporaneous with Mariano de Tahan because of um, the influence of English, um, because English came into uh, Bahol in 1902 and it became the language of education and later of government. So um, this, of course, makes him a contemporary of Mariano de Tahan. And in fact, the older generation, people who have now passed away, were quite um, candid about, well, Pinay and Mariano de Tahan are pretty much, they're, they're the same person. So Mariano de Tahan represented himself as the prophet of Pinay, but you can probably just, uh, without being insulting to to the the narrative history you can say realistically they're the same person mm. yeah and so so some of the pieces of evidence here for your your um your argument are, are better left to the book because it gets into some 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 quite detailed material but one of the things that i found um fascinating was the idea that the the i guess you 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 distinguish between script and writing system but the um um, I guess the the writing system is a cipher for transliterating a Spanish alphabet, or would you say the script? How, how would you right. put that? Yeah. Um, well, you can people and including me use writing system and script interchangeably when when we shouldn't, um, because the the script is um, the script is the outward form of of a writing system. The writing system is the systematicity that also includes the script. So the Roman uh, writing system that is typically used for English and, and lots of languages, the system is an alphabet um, and the typeface is Roman, if you like. So, um, yeah, what, what were we talking about? So the, so the, the transliteration of the Spanish alphabet or oh, the right, Spanish orthography right. of Visayan, which was the other piece of evidence here too. That's right, yeah. yeah. So there's a traditional way of learning the script and which is and slash writing system. It is deeply complex it's got over a thousand signs and um most of them are syllabic but then there's this little subset that are alphabetic and syllabic simultaneously and then um 
and the way you learn the the traditional way to learn the script is to learn what's called the um the abidiha first which is the first considered the first 46 letters of the system and this includes alphabetic letters even in a kind of rough roman alphabetical recitation order a b c d um and then there's a series of um syllables that are common syllables in spanish and in visayan and yes so because this is how you learn it and this is um uh, how it's always been my my supposition is well, why these 46 because they're not particularly great for writing a sky in words and there's letters like or, or even visayan words so there's letters like f for example and there is not really an f sound in most philippine languages um so even even though the <laughs> the philippines starts with an f but that gets that gets um kind of adapted to Filipino or whatever. So there's Fs and there's things, there's very Spanish syllables like Sion is there. And then there's very Visayan syllables like Pug. These get their own symbols. So I um, I surmise that these were the first letters that were created and they were created specifically for writing in Visayan or in Spanish orthography of Visayan so or, or, or things like um, Spanish words Spanish place names um, and and Spanish personal names so that's what I what that's what I claim that's what I hypothesize and then later the language so that was created before there was any language new um, or revealed language when a sky and word started coming up and you can see them popping up in the traditional literature um, you can almost, I, I've got a set that I assume are the first words to come up for various reasons. Then you need to create different kinds of syllable shapes because the Skyan has a, a different syllable structure. Um, it's a highly complex syllable structure. Um, so it requires this later set of uh, symbols and it expands to a thousand plus. And the thing that I always baffles me and which I find also quite fun is the fact that there are some symbols that are there in that you learn that are in the reference documents that you never need for any Visayan word, Skyan word, Spanish word, or English word. You know, I can't think of one off the hand, but things like, I don't know, blick or whatever, just kind of, they're nonsense syllables, but they're still, they're still there. Um, they're still there in the materials that you're supposed to learn. That's interesting. So, so this story back to the kind of uh, the, the discourse around the origins of Eskaya. What is this doing for the Eskayan people to have this kind of, as you put it, auto-historical discourse? Um, yeah. Um, well, maybe I could, I could get there by talking a little about that the history, the kind of historical context in which I believe the language was revealed or recuperated because I do see the language very much as a response to um, a pretty dramatic sense of histor a set of historical events. Um, so this was, um, <coughs> this was research that was based on oral histories and archives and a lot on genealogies. So I did genealogies of um, sort of a thousand or odd individuals um, to work out where were Eskaya people before they were up here in the highlands? Were they always up here in the highlands? Who were they intermarrying with? And then looking at some Spanish records and some American records, which are very thin on the ground, um, but 
piecing together a story, which is that um, so at the end of the the nineteenth century, we get the Philippine Revolution, which is very dramatic. It's been building for a while. It's very dramatic. You've got this revolutionary group called the the Katipunan, who are fighting against the Spanish. But then the um, the U.S. Army intervenes because they're fighting the Spanish-American War, and they um, they are allied with the Filipino revolutionaries. But when the the Spanish are, are expelled from the Philippines, the the U.S. decides, uh, sorry, we're actually going to keep the islands for the time being. Um, so the revolutionaries are very upset about this, and so so begins the Philippine-American War which lasts for a good four years, and it's pretty, pretty brutal. Um, but one of the very last places that the U.S. Army gets to in their kind of mopping up is Bohol. And at this time, this is 1901, Bohol is acting like an independent state. It's issuing its own stamps. You know, it's got it's created its own flag. This is the whole island. It's run by a military dictatorship. Um, in come the um, U.S. forces and they absolutely devastate the island. So they burn pretty much every single coastal town to the ground. Um, and the fighting is very, very fierce. One of the worst affected places was a town called Luun on the west coast. This is where Mariano de Tahan was born. And he was born into a poor fishing village uneducated um, parents, but he was one of the lucky ones who got an education because he ended up working as an altar boy, a sacristan for a Spanish priest. So he learnt um, presumably a certain amount of Spanish. Um, He learned how to read and write. He had access to Latin. The extraordinary thing about this priest, Father Felix Guibien, is that he was a linguist um, who had, in fact, written a grammar of Visayan, during the lifetime of uh, Mariano de Tahan, during that period. So it could be that Mariano de Tahan was a collaborator on this linguistic grammar of this science. So this is an important part of the story. So anyway, he grows up, then the war happens. Mariano de Tahan is of age. He joins the revolutionaries. He fights against the Spanish. Um, he Then the, the Boholano forces surrender. Um, but Mariano de Tahan says, I'm not going to surrender. Um, and he takes a group of people from his village, brings them, I think, by boat around to the other side of the island, takes them up into the mountains, establishes this township of Biabas um, as a kind of an outpost that of the we will never surrender variety. And it's a perfect place if you visit Biabas to stage a kind of a last stand because you've got a view all around Um and it's, it has been that over history. So it's where the Dagohoi rebels hung out in the 18th century. It's where the New People's Army hung out in the, in the 20th century. So there he is in Biabas in this perfect spot. And he's like, I will not surrender to the Americans. Um, and so then what happens is the US begin introducing their system to the lowlands and they start teaching, uh, creating free schools. So there's a universal education for the first time in the history of the islands. And young people are going down and learning from the highlands to the lowlands and learning English in these schools and coming back literate. So this is at a time now there's relative peace in, in the whole islands In we're getting into the 1920s. Um, but this is also a time where Mariano de Tahan is he's a little bit challenged. He's suddenly, the the Americans are winning the cultural war against him. And so he starts to um, realise that he, um, 
he starts to kind of accommodate a bit with the regime. He takes on the role of Barangay captain, but he also develops this new religion at the time. Um, well, it's the Philippine Independent Church, which is not a new religion. It's a sort of a breakaway sect. But within the Philippine Ind- Independent Church, he creates his own movement. Um, and this is a patriotic kind of cultural movement, a, a kind of, it's very cultish, which was typical of that time as well around the Philippines, these kind of patriotic pro-independence cults. And he decides at this point, this is my theory anyway, and, I, and, and I'm quite clear in the book that this is speculation, this part where he says, they're, they're introducing a new foreign language in the lowlands. I'm the most educated person in this village. I can speak a bunch of languages. The, the, the mythology was that he could speak every language in the world. Um, so now's the time for me to bring back the old language, um, to recuperate it from the past, and, again, to mimic and oppose. So here you are with English coming into the lowlands with your school system. Here I am in the highlands I've got the real language that's before English, that's before Spanish, um, that's even before Visayan. And what's more, I've got my own school system that's exactly like yours. Um, So this was his kind of culture war, as it were, um, in the mountains. So this is why the language is doing a lot of work in this scenario. The language is standing almost like a national flag. It's standing very defiantly. Um, and it has to embody something that is, it has to, in its own form, embody something that is radically different. So it, um, it exoticizes, I claim it sort of exoticizes foreignness. It creates, it's as if he thought, let's create the most foreign sounding language that we can. And what are the models of foreignness? Well, they're Spanish and English. So this is why when you hear um, someone speaking in Sky, and some, sometimes it can sound a bit like someone speaking Spanish with a Filipino accent, because the syllable structure is very similar to Spanish. And there are also lots of Spanish-like features, like having multiple syllable roots, which you don't get in Visayan. So very long words um, is is something that Filipinos go, wow, these Spanish have lots of long words, uh, long root forms. Um, so that, that gets replicated. And then you get also Spanish influence in the vocabulary and an English influence in the vocabulary. So this, um, this is very much a language that has been mobilized for a culture war, if you like. So where does this culture war stand now in the sense of, for instance, who speaks this language and in what contexts and what's the the the, the likelihood of this language continuing on uh, as a spoken and written language in in that context in Bal- well, in the Skyan, um the Skyan community and, and culture has changed like all cultures do um, but quite rapidly over the the last hundred plus years um, and one thing that I think is remarkable, the reason why it's been, there's so much continuity. So these movements were all over the place in the 19, the, the first decade of the 20th century. And then they all kind of died out all over the Philippines. And this one is still going, but it's because it has been able to evolve and adapt. So um, Eskaya people, I think, always knew when to fight and when to hang back when to change around, uh, when to be oppositional. And this is um, this is a great kind of cultural fluidity that has served them well. And so I think 
when we talk about this period, 1920s and 30s, when Ascaian's coming into, into being, there's a, there's a, this is a period of radicalism. Then you get World War II and the Japanese occupation. That's a difficult time. The Skaya are resisting the Japanese, not very effectively. Um, and then Mariano de Tahan dies in 1949. And then there's a period of chaos. Um, there's feuding in Biabas. And then there's a new colony of Skaya people created in the 1950s up in the hills in Tai Tai. So this is a second redoubt that's even further away, that's even harder to access. So this is what those agricultural vices found in 1980. Um, but under the leadership of, of a guy called Fabian Baja, there's this kind of new Skaya culture is completely reinvented again in the 1950s. It becomes, the language becomes more about, we're going to use it liturgically. We're going to use it for... Uh, prayers and songs and we're going to use it for um yeah um uh, the, the um hymns get translated into a sky and so and then it the education becomes very important formal education in these schools is, is kind of rebooted um but then and even before fabian baja passed away so i met him um when he was very elderly but it's been reinvented all over again so you talk to Skaya people today there isn't the sense of radicalism that was there in the past. They're very patriotic, but Filipinos often are very patriotic. And um, it's become more of a, a community activity. So you go to these Sunday schools and you learn and you sit down and it's fun. There's no, no one is wrapping you over the knuckles and telling you you have to be there, but you get a lot of prestige. Um, you get status if you can speak the language well. Um, and I, it took me a long time to want to join the class because I felt like I wasn't, you know, it wasn't appropriate. Then I joined these classes and I had a great, I had a great time. And this is when I really got an insight into why this language is, is still going is because it's really fun. Like, it's like learning any language is fun. Like it's stimulating, but it was fun in a way that was, like doing crossword puzzles and wordles and that sort of thing, because it's so strange and because the writing system is so strange and so deliberately difficult that it's intellectually stimulating. So anyway, this is a roundabout way of saying now, today, what Ascaian language is doing is it's not doing this political oppositional work anymore. It is, however, sometimes getting deployed in this um, these government interactions where in order to sort of claim access to various resources or to get a policy advantage in a certain area, the language is put forward by advocates um, to do this. And that's also been very successful. So now Ascaian is also taught in official government schools, not just traditional schools, but just for half an hour a day in the village of Tai Tai. And I've attended some of these classes and they're very well, they're very well taught too. Ascaian people are great teachers. They've been teaching for a hundred years, um, using their own methods, um, and they're very engaging teachers. And this is popular with the young kids as well. That's great. So, in the time we've got left, I've, I've kept you for a while. I want to have one more follow up before before we close things. Um, you close the book by some reflections about bigger applications of, of some of these processes, uh, and so I just. There's a lot of things we could talk about, but what do you think it would be an interesting takeaway that we can we can draw from a sky into language in general, other languages in Southeast Asia, the politics of language there? 
just a what yeah. would be a concluding thought well a concluding thought is this is that this is the language that as, as i said i got into it accidentally but this is how i discovered what linguistic anthropology actually is and it's a hard thing to define but if you want to define it look at a sky because a linguistic anthropologists say um language is more than just language it's always more than just language it's not just this system where we have these tiny little bits of information that we're trying to convey accurately to another person we're always doing something more with language um so a, a traditional linguist will want to write a grammar and describe the nouns and verbs and phonemes, whereas a linguistic anthropologist will want to do that, but they'll want to say, how are these linguistic phenomena connected to these social phenomena? Um, and, you know, how is language a form of social action at the same time? So this is such an extreme example of something that we all do all the time. We're always... Have, we're always developing ideas about language. We, we have our own ideologies about language, about who is allowed to speak what language, what language is taboo, what language is not, what language is efficacious. Um, at the moment, there's big discussions about, um, you know, ongoing discussions about how we talk about gender, for example, that's new, but it's also mobilising language in this new way in order to enact something socially. So I think that's the big takeaway. And the kind of medium-sized takeaway is that while this is an, a, a, an admittedly extreme situation, it's not as extreme when you look across the region. And then I started looking further afield into places like West Africa, Northeast India, and you go, okay, there are other Askaya-like phenomena happening around the world where people are going, okay, let's do something radical and creative linguistically in order to do something else to do something political, to do something religious. So that's probably what else I would say about it. That's great. Well, thank you for that. What are you working on now? Um, well, I've, I've jumped over from Sky into th that bigger question of, uh, I got very interested in West Africa, where there were two similar Skya-like movements um, uh, in Cameroon and uh, Nigeria. And then I started working on a language in uh, a script in Liberia called... Um, the Vice script. So I did that for a few years in uh, in Germany at the Max Planck Institute in Vienna. And then from there, uh, still kind of being carried through by the Askayan project, I'm now in Australia working on uh, Australian message sticks, uh, Australian message stick communication. This is a really interesting, endlessly interesting um, Indigenous system of long-distance communication where you have these little pieces of wood that are polished and they're carved in a particular way and they're inscribed with signs. I've got one here, actually. Um, no one's going to be able to see this, but um, <laughs> it's got little um, signs on it and you carry it over long distances with an oral message that interacts with the signs. And the reason I find it so interesting is that message sticks though they are unpresupposing to look at, are doing something that's very much like writing. They're doing something that they're doing functionally what writing does without being writing. They are not representing language. Um, and some things they even do better than writing. Um, so, for example, cross-linguistic communication. Um, so this is what I, I'm working on at the moment. Very cool. Well, thank you for, for sharing snippets of that and uh, for taking the time to talk to us about Askaya. And it was fascinating. I learned I learned a lot uh, reading the book. And of course, we'll have the link up on the podcast. Uh, and yeah, thanks for your time, Pierce. No worries. It was fun. Thank you.